following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, how many music lovers do we have here in the room? Well, a lot of music lovers. Artisan is a good place to be if you like good music, isn't it? Amen. Um, I'm a music lover, as you know, and uh, one of my favorite things to experience as a music lover is a really good cover song. Everybody familiar with the term? Cover song, cover tune. I see some people shaking their heads. No, a cover is when one artist performs a version of a song that was uh, originally by a different artist. Right? And that new artist will give their particular spin to it and it'll sound different. Some people like the cover tune better than the original. This is probably most famously the case with um, really, well, anything Bob Dylan wrote. But um, <laughs> pret- <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Bob Dylan jokes land. Okay, I will file that away for future use. Um, but the, this, how many of you love the song All Along the Watchtower? You know this song, right? Uh, the, the very best version of All Along the Watchtower is, of course, indisputably Jimi Hendrix. Uh, but U2 has done it. Dave Matthews Band has done it. Originally, Bob Dylan wrote and performed it. Um, that's a cover song. Well, I want to tell you that because part of today's sermon uh, is is actually a little bit of a cover uh, of a wonderful sermon that has actually been preached by a handful of different preachers, and um, it was really powerful for me the first time I heard it, and it has just continued to have depth. I've listened to it many times by different people, and it's continued to have great depth for me. I first heard it preached uh, by a pastor in Missouri Missouri named Brian Zond. Yeah, uh, some of us listened to that podcast but it was originally conceived by a Catholic priest by the name of Father Anthony Cabron. And I have also seen uh, a version of it on YouTube given by an Eastern Orthodox priest. So it's a very ecumenical sermon. And it's a very beautiful sermon. And I hope that I will uh, do it well. And I hope that I'll be able to give it my own flavor and a little bit of artisan's flavor in a, in a way of spinning this that um, will connect with you. Uh, and if it connects with you even Half as much as it connected with me, um, I think it will be a, a big success. A success. So I wanted to tell you that up front because the only thing you can't do when you cover a song is pass it off as your own material, uh, like Led Zeppelin did with their entire catalog. <laughs> okay. All right. Led Zeppelin jokes do not land. I don't know. <laughs> So, uh, before we get to that part of it, let me just dive in with what uh, we're here to celebrate today, which is, of course, the resurrection. And the Revised Common Lectionary um, points us this year to the particular account of the resurrection that's found in John's Gospel. How wonderful is that? We just spent all of Lent, and we've spent many, many weeks over the past couple of years in John's Gospel. And in the second to last chapter of John, chapter 20, uh, you get his telling of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in a minute, I'm going to read this to you, and if you'd like to get your Bibles open to John chapter 20, you can do that. If you're using the Red Bibles, it's on page 882. Um, by the way, if you do not own a Bible, we would love to send you home with one of these. We, have, we buy them by the case, and so um, it's not stealing, it is a gift. Please take a Bible home with you if you don't have one. Um, so I want to read this passage from John, and then I actually want to go back to the beginning of John's Gospel, because... Um, 
this is the, the coming into the end of John's story, but it very much completes a theme that he has started to, that he starts to weave in literally the first three words of his gospel. So we'll come back to uh, the beginning of John's gospel. Now the other thing that this will do this morning uh, is this will serve as the beginning point for a new topical series that we're going to be doing at Artisan over the next four weeks called The Atonement. Now that's why you see this rather stark image of Christ on the cross on the screen. Uh, I know that it's Easter and we should have a picture of Christ uh, rising from the grave or of the empty tomb. But part of what we're talking about throughout this series is why Jesus died and what that tells us about God and ourselves and our world. Now, the atonement, uh, if you're a theology nerd, you, you already know, is a huge, huge, important and sometimes difficult and sometimes even controversial topic. But for today, I want you to forget all of that stuff and not worry about it. You don't have to know anything about that today. In fact, if I do my job right, you don't even have to know what the word atonement means, and I'm not going to define it for you until next week, to understand this sermon. So let's begin, though, with John chapter 20, the first 10 verses. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Incidentally, the other disciple is John, the writer of this text, and he's being um, uh, self-deprecating here, or humble. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. This is the story of Easter. This is the resurrection. So now let's talk a little bit about what what all this means for our world. And to do that, I want to go back to the beginning, as I said. I just closed my Bible, so now I have to find it again. This happens to be, as I said, the beginning of John's Gospel, but it's also the beginning, with a capital B. In fact, it starts out by saying, in the beginning. And where have we heard those words before? We've heard them at the story of creation. But this is the beginning before even the world was formed. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, referring to Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. I'm going to jump to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Now I will skip to verse 18, and this is very important. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made Him known. So I needed to start there, because that gives the theological underpinning for the Easter story. In fact, for all the other stories in the Gospels. It's the theological underpinning for all the stories in the entire Bible, even the ones that were written before John's Gospel, which, by the way, is almost all of them. 
It is the theological underpinning for all the stories in the entire world. Yours and mine and your neighbor's and everyone else's. That theological underpinning is this. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this. God's people have not always fully understood it. But now we do. God is like Jesus. And so what I want to do, and this is the cover song, is give you the story of the gospel, the message, the good news, in two different ways. Now, the first way I want to give it to you is the way that most of you have heard it probably, either in church or just kind of picking it up from pop culture and the way Christianity is described and explained. It's a very common version of the gospel story nowadays. There is a great deal of truth in it, but it is also a very modern telling of the gospel story. It is now probably the majority view in our section of the church. But it really only became the, the majority view in the Western church in the second half of Christian history. It has never been the, the majority view in the Eastern church. And it has really only really, really become the majority view in the last, say, 20 to 25% of church history. It's the telling of the gospel story that relies very heavily on legal language. Uh, Both Calvin and Luther, the great reformers, what was their profession? They were lawyers, right? And so this language appealed to them. That is a very common telling of the gospel. It's a modern telling of the gospel, and there is a lot of truth in it, but... After I do that, I want to give you a more ancient telling of the gospel story, one that I think is truly a beautiful gospel. And the way that I'm going to do this is to use these two chairs, which hopefully will not squeak and bang too much. I have two chairs here. The one that is painted black represents God. And the one that is unpainted and is sort of brownish color represents humankind. Now, I will ask you to forgive me if I slip into uh, gender-exclusive language and say man. Of course, I don't mean just males, but common language sometimes makes us say man for humankind. And I will alternate between those two words probably in the next little bit here. So here's the first telling of the gospel, the one that you have probably heard. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created humankind. God created man, men and women, in his image and his likeness. He created them to be in fellowship with him and for them to reflect his glory. But the great tragedy in the Garden of Eden is that humankind turned away from God. In their sin and in their pride, They disobeyed and turned away from God. Now because God is so perfectly holy and righteous, he cannot even look upon sin. And so not only did humankind turn their backs on God, but when they sinned, God 
turned his back on them. And there was true, utter separation. But because God continued to love his creation, he sent his son. He became a man, a human being. And Jesus, the Son of God, was the perfect human being. He became everything that God wanted his creation to be in the first place. He was completely obedient. He lived a sinless life. He was in perfect fellowship with the Father. And he reflected the Father's glory. However, at the end of his life, he was crucified and died. And as this telling of the gospel goes, God placed all of the sin of the entire world, yours and mine and our neighbors and everybody else's, on his son Jesus at the cross. And because God continued to be holy and righteous, he could not even look upon sin. And so he did the unthinkable and turned his back on his son. Now those of us who believe that God did this thing are saved by our faith. Martin Luther, uh, ever eloquent, said that we become like snow-covered dung. (laughs) R.C. Sproul in a probably not the most subtle thing he ever said, said that Jesus becomes our asbestos suit, protecting us from the white-hot wrath of God. Those of us who believe that God does things are saved by our faith, but those who do not believe remain in their sin. And God turns away from them, ultimately. And they spend eternity under the white-hot wrath of God's holiness without Jesus as a protection. That's the Western telling of the gospel story. That's the one that many of you have heard parts of, or all of, or versions of. And now I want to tell you a more ancient version of the gospel story. It's very similar, but it's different in some subtle and important ways begins the same way, like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created humankind in his image and his likeness in hopes that they would reflect his glory, that they would be in perfect fellowship with him. But the tragedy in the garden happened, and humans sinned and turned their back on God breaking fellowship with him. So far, this story is the same. In their sin, humankind became subject to futility and death in all their endeavors. So the primary purpose of the gospel in this more ancient telling is not to address a legal challenge although, again, that language does exist in Scripture, the primary reason that God sends His Son 
is to make it so his people would no longer be completely and utterly subject to futility and to death. So God sends his son, Jesus. God becomes a human being, a man. And Jesus becomes the perfect human. Everything that God wanted his created people to be in the beginning. In perfect fellowship with them. Perfectly reflecting his glory. And his image. Gregory of Nazianza says of the incarnation, which is the theological word for God becoming a human being, that which he has not assumed, meaning taken on himself, he has not redeemed, he has not saved. That which he has not assumed, he has not redeemed. So the incarnation is of utmost importance. The life of Jesus, not just the death of Jesus, is part of how God saves us. So, here is a woman a human person who happens to be a woman who has been caught in the sin of adultery. And the religious establishment gleefully drags her before God in an attempt to catch him in a legal trap and says, Teacher, the law says that we should stone such women. What do you say we should do? This woman who has sinned and turned away from God. And how does God respond? He says to them, let the one of you who is without sin cast the first stone, and they immediately drift away. And then he kneels down in the dirt and he says to the woman, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? No one, sir. Neither then do I condemn you. Now go on your way and do not continue in your life of sin. Here is a man, a good Jewish person, who becomes consumed with greed and ambition and sins by colluding with the occupying Roman Empire and becoming a tax collector and overtaxing his brothers and sisters, profiting off the top And as a consequence, he has no friends. And he is a bit of an outcast. Rightfully so, some would say. But what happens when God comes near to Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus is up in the tree, right? He says, Zacchaeus, you friendless thief! I want to have dinner at your house. Cook me a steak. And he says, truly salvation has come to this man's house. Now here is a woman who for one reason or another, and the text is not explicitly clear about why, as Chris so brilliantly pointed out a few weeks ago, whether it's her own sinfulness or a product of the sinfulness of her culture, or a combination thereof, she has been through husband after husband after husband. And the man she's living with present is not her husband at all. And so, in addition to the fact that she's a Samaritan, so she's a cultural and social outcast, she's this serially married, divorced, widowed 
woman. So she's a double outcast. But what happens when she meets God? God sits down next to her at a well. And remember what Chris pointed out. What is the significance of a man and a woman meeting at a well? What happens in the Old Testament with all of the patriarchs when they meet a woman at the well? They become husband and wife. Now, Jesus is not going to marry this woman, but what a, what a marvelous, powerful symbol to meet her at a well, this woman who has been married so many times. And he says to her, I am the water of life. Here is a man who is so consumed by darkness that he is possessed by a legion of demons. He is the picture of a raving madman. He lives in a graveyard, naked, screaming and cutting himself. Nobody in the town will even go near this graveyard because they're so terrified of this multiply possessed man. But here comes God sailing across the Sea of Galilee and he says to the man, I will come close to you. And he casts out the demons and the man returns to a normal state and there he is sitting together with God. Here's a man who, because the entire world is consumed by futility and death because of Sin has some sort of disease that has left him paralyzed. And what happens when he meets God? His friends are good enough to to carry him, to see Jesus and to lower him down through the roof. God says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And when the religious establishment gets a little angry about that, he says, Oh, by the way, pick up your mat and walk. And when humankind, in its fear and its pride, expressing the very worst of systemic oppression and violence, does the truly unthinkable sin and murders God, executes him unjustly, how does God respond? With white hot wrath? No. With Violence of his own? No. What does Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. And so when humankind meets its final futility and we experience death, God says, though you go down to Sheol, I am there. Have you ever tried to explain to a child why we call it Good Friday if Jesus died? Have you ever had that difficult challenge? This is why. God's relentless, loving pursuit of his people extends all the way to the grave. That is why it's Good Friday. But the story does not end there. Because what else does God say? 
He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, behold, I was dead and now I live again. And I have the keys to death and Hades. And he says, there's a time coming and it's actually already here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and will come out of the tombs. This is the beauty of Easter. That we die with Christ so that we can be raised with Him. This is the restorative, more beautiful picture of the gospel that is actually much more common in Christian history than the one that I told you before. It's truly a beautiful gospel. And the crucial point is that in telling this story, however you tell the gospel story, you must not pit God against Christ because they are one. You see, Christ did not come to change the Father. You theologians know that God is immutable. His character does not change. God does not come to change the Father or to placate the Father or to satisfy the Father's wrath or His thirst for perfect justice. God sends Jesus to reveal the Father. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this. God's people have not always understood this, but now we do. Colossians 1, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, says of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God. In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace, not violence, but peace through the blood of his cross. God in Christ was reconciling the whole world to himself, not reconciling himself to the world, but the world to himself. Hebrews chapter 1 says of Jesus, he is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. So if you see someone describing a God that acts differently from Jesus, that, and I do not like to use this word, is heresy. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this. God's people have not always understood this. But now we do. And God is never turning away from humanity. Do you know how I know? What do you see Jesus doing? How many times in the Gospels do you see Jesus coming to a sinner and saying, Ah! I am so holy and righteous that I cannot even look at you and turning away from that sinner. How many times does Jesus do that in the Gospels? Zero. There are some people in the Gospel stories who do that. Who are they? 
the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the religious establishment. Now, I hope that it is not a controversial statement for me to say that God is like Jesus, not a Pharisee. Will you ride me out on a rail if I say that? No matter where we turn, God is there confronting us with his love. You see, the gospel is not this. We turn and God turns. The gospel is this. We turn and God pursues. We sin and God forgives. We flee from God and He comes after us. There is no place that God is not. There is no one who does not experience the love of God, the endless pursuit in spite of our sin. God followed us all the way to the grave. When we turn away from God, God confronts us with His love. And for those who would return in love to God, that love is like a warm light. For those who return His love with hatred, that love is understood and received as burning coals. Paul said, Uh, If your enemy is hungry, give him food. And if your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. In so doing, you will heap coals on his head. I don't know if Paul was just being a jerk. I I hope not. Taking delight in his enemy's pain. I think he was pointing out that when you extend love to an enemy, as Jesus commands us to do, very often our enemies cannot receive that. They receive it as hatred. They receive it like burning coals. It's the same with God's love. When he extends it to us and we respond with our own love, it's warmth and light. When he extends it to us and we respond with hatred and further dismissal, ultimately we experience that as the white-hot wrath of God. This is the beautiful gospel. This is the story that Easter wants us to tell. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this. God's people have not always understand this. But now we do. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your unfailing love, your kindness that leads us to repentance. May we do the really difficult work of believing and trusting enough to accept your love for what it is rather than to push ourselves farther and farther from you. May it be for us warmth and light, not a heap of coals. May we receive your grace and goodness in all that we do so that we can be restored 
to what you have created us to be. Human people who reflect your glory and your goodness, who are in perfect fellowship with you. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we pray, for whom we give thanks on this Easter morning. Amen. I would invite all of you here this morning who want to participate in this great redeeming work to respond to the words of Scripture and to His Word, the Word, capital W, Jesus Himself, at the table. We celebrate an open communion table at Artisan, which means everybody in the room who's seeking to follow Jesus is welcome and invited to participate. You can tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in either of the cups. At both stations, we have wine and juice. Of course, you should choose uh, in a way that would be appropriate for you and for your family. Remember that his body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us. May it be for you food for your hungry souls and an act of community and communion with your brothers and sisters here in this room with those who celebrate communion all around our city and all around our world and all throughout time. This is the great unifying sacrament of the church. If you are not following Jesus, if you are here visiting, just curious, please don't feel like you have to do this in order to fit in here. Um, Nobody will glare at you if you choose not to take communion. You can sit and think and meditate, pray, and that's okay. I would remind you that there are member of a prayer team will be up here uh, to pray with you in person if you would like that. However, you would like to respond to God's word in this time. Please do so now. We'll continue to sing together. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.